Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to The Coming Out Tapes, an audio archive of LGBTQ stories. I am your curator, Karis Bradley. Today, we're talking to Stuart Hu, someone that I met uh, at a stand-up comedy night who blew everyone away with a hilarious story about um, his math teacher and then his drama teacher, one of whom was very bad and one of whom was very good. Guess which was which. Um, so thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me uh, thank you for having me and thank you for allowing me to do that stand-up that was a nerve-wracking first experience <laughs> uh well you rocked it so it's good um so why don't we just start off with sort of who you are so how would you describe yourself i would describe myself as somebody who much like anybody in london has a number of jobs <laughs> and roles and hats and wigs in order to keep myself entertained and pay the bills um, by day, um, I do press and digital media for the Society for Applied Microbiology. Um, I also DJ. I've been DJing for about 30 years. Um, I sometimes chair Queer Question Time at the Vauxhall Tavern, which is kind of, it's much like Question Time, but gay and live. <laughs> Um, and occasionally write for magazines and stuff if they want me. Um, so they're the kind of things that I, I juggle most of the time. I have been um, a psychiatric nurse. I have been an amateur strip judge. And I've been a kitchen porter in Norberton Bus Garage. So, you know, it, you know, you do what you can. Quite the career. What kind of music do you DJ? It depends on the client. That was a very professional word, wasn't it? <laughs> it makes me sound really professional. Um, so, you know, I've done all sorts of clubs. I've done the Terrace of Amnesia in Ibiza. I've done big raves in Brazil. Mostly at the moment, the gigs I do most regularly are 50th birthday parties and people's second weddings. Um, and I like doing those because I like doing those gigs. There's a lot of shame attached to DJs doing those things. But, you know, I've been doing it 30 years. I don't need to prove anything. If you do a wedding, you'll get fed. There'll be free drink. People are happy. And you generally go home before 2 a.m. So, you know, that, that kind of works for me. Um, and how, uh, how do you identify 
as a member of the community? As a member of the community, I would say I like the queer. Queer works for me, um, but I guess in old-fashioned terms, I'm a gay man. Um, and how long have you been calling yourself queer? Um, I would say that happened about... I would say that happened with the kind of beginning of ACT UP and stuff when that kind of happened in the 90s and there was, you know, there was the outing campaigns with the queer as F. I'm not going to swear. I don't you know. Can, swear can I swear? Too. Okay. Yeah. So they, they were the, um, you know, the queer as fuck posters that came out in the 90s that were attached to certain celebrities who were apparently in the closet at the time. And I guess that made me think about the word. That was the first time the reclaiming of the word came about. And, yeah, and I, I kind of liked it. I liked the idea, you know, around AIDS activism, queer kind of came about as kind of like a political FU and it was in people's faces. And I was working in the press at the time, the gay press at the time. So all of that stuff was much about the debate. So the word queer really appealed to me then because it had... Yeah, it, it had a kick to the rest of society to it, and I quite like that, and I still do. I was going to say, do you still think that it has that kind of edge to it? <sighs> well, it's been co-opted slightly, um, and I think I think there's a lot of, like, when that term was used then, it was shocking, you know, and when you saw the words queer as fuck put together, that was shocking. Um, and also, it wasn't that long after the term was still, a, you know, a term of abuse, um, so I think it's lost that slightly. It's not quite as shocking to people. And I think it's possible that you could adopt the term now and not feel like you had to, it was a political statement, or not feel like you had to back that up with politics. If you were calling yourself queer in the kind of late 80s, 90s, you were probably an activist and you were probably doing that for much of, much of your time. So I think there's a big difference now. Before you um, started identifying with the word queer, did you use the word gay? Yes. I mean, yes, tentatively. Okay, so did it sort of go from like like a level one or two to right up, turn it up to 11, straight to queer? I mean, I think like with many things, you you adjust according to the situation. There's certain situations where you want to say, yes, I am queer, and you want to shout it out. And there are other times where you'll just whisper, well, um, I'm sorry, but I'm gay. <laughs> um, so, you know, it just depends on the situation. And I um, I admire anyone who can stick to the, I'm queer at all times, um, but they are quite rare. Um, so when did you first uh, re start to realise that you were queer or, or gay? Um, I guess, it, it, you know... I, as with most people, I mean, I don't know, maybe some people have a road to Damascus moment. I, you know, it's it's a gradual realisation, you know, uh, a slight crush on Lee Majors, who was the $6 million man, who was that, that was our kind of the, the big TV programme at the time. Um, and, you know, that just kind of attachment to kind of like handsome male people. Um, and you slowly realise that that's not quite the done thing. Um, and it is a kind of like slow dawning and a sad one and a frightening one for me. You know, it's, I think this is what's going on. What is it? Um, 
if this is what is going on, I don't want it. <laughs> um, can it go away? Please, I will make it go away in all the different ways that I think I can make it go. No, it's still here. It's still here, and that can go... That was basically my teenage years, and I think is most people's teenage years. No, 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 this isn't real. I will really kick against this. I will pray. I will I will try and romance members of the opposite sex. I will do all these things, and then... I don't know. You, I, I, And then you, you have unrequited love for people that are homophobic and things like that, that are really like the school bullies. You know, there's nothing worse than being kicked around the playground by someone you really, really fancy. <laughs> Um, and it's at that point you just think, oh, this is it. I, uh, this is what I am. Um, and this is deeply unfortunate, uh, you know, as you think, as as someone stomps on you. So, yeah, I, I guess that was a gradual thing. And it was only really when I got to university and I was away from home that I was able to fully say, this is the situation now and there's no denying this. I can snog as many girls as I can like. I can lie to as many people as I like, but I can't lie to myself. <laughs> so, um, Do you remember the first time that you said it out loud? Um, I guess I never said... No, I don't, I, you know, I don't... I mean, maybe there are people now who have a a big I am gay announcing kind of moment at parties. I had other people ask me, are you gay? And I said, yes, I am. Um, and, but I didn't really have a, um, I am gay till quite a few le years later, I guess in my early twenties. Um, when I, you know, when I had to declare that to someone and it was an important situation. Um, it it just wasn't the climate for it. Um, I think I think it's really difficult for people to understand how harsh the climate was in in the late eighties. You know, it was under clause twenty eight. You know, so you couldn't talk about it at school. Your teachers couldn't talk about it at school. It was illegal. You know, effectively. You know, I was also under the age of consent. You know, the age of consent didn't change till the mid nineties. So being under twenty one. I was effectively jailbait by saying I was gay to anybody. So it was illegal. It was AIDS was all over the front pages. So the, there wasn't really the arenas, you know. And so, yes, I was going to gay clubs, but I didn't need to announce I was gay when I swished onto the dance floor. That was already apparent. So that was, you know, you really did live a double life. I certainly was anyway. Um, so given that kind of context, when you were in secondary school... Was there, like, were there any resources that you remember finding that you were able to, like, read about? Or did you know anyone who was out? There were no resources whatsoever. There was, there really was nothing of the sort. It was, it was really Lord of the Flies, and it was a very heterosexual Lord of the Flies. I had a best friend. You kind of, you, obviously, you kind of migrate somehow um, to your own to your own people um, and my best friend at school was Damon King and we used to wear leg warmers in rugby and we used to pull up our leg warmers and safety pin them to the shorts so that they were like stockings um, and so I spent a lot of time with Damon who was way ahead of me um, sexuality wise and outness wise 
Um, so by association, and then you're seen with someone who was also a little bit effeminate and seemingly gay. So then you, 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 the pair of you become bullied. You know, you attract more attention by being together. So, you know, that's the decision you had to make. If we walked home from school together, you know, you attracted more attention than if you were on your own. Um, but no, there was no resources. I remember the kind of the most exciting things were the change in television. Like Channel 4 came about at that time. And there were Derek Jarman films and there were there were just things on Channel 4 because they were being brave at the time that were slightly gay. Um, and, well, Derek Jarman is very gay. Um, so, But that would be on at like midnight. So I would have to wait till my family had gone to bed and then I'd watch them. And, it, it, you know, watching an esoteric art interpretation of... Uh, queer stuff from either ancient Greece or, you know, with, with um, Caravaggio and stuff like that. It wasn't really the data I, I needed as how to come out as a teenager and deal with it. That just wasn't there. So, you know, it was it was all very confusing where one found the information and you were forced to, you know, so I would like creep up to gay bars and maybe steal a few flyers or get a magazine or something like that. That was that was where my resources were. They weren't at school. I mean, I think one of the, the, the most dangerous parts of that, being young, having no access to resources, um, and yet being interested, um, was cruising grounds and cottaging. That was because I couldn't go to gay bars because, you know, if you're under 21, though there were, there were, you know, people always want to have young, attractive people in their bars. So some bars you could get away with it. But, you know, you would basically a, a place would lose their license. So there's me, 14, 15. You somehow find yourself in gay cruising grounds. You do find out where those places are. It's almost like, I mean, I don't know if it happens now because because we have Internet porn. But it was like back then if there was a park and there was a porn magazine in the park, children will find that. <laughs> okay. Why is that? I mean, I don't, they just will find it. Now, if it's in the furthest corner of the park and that is how a lot of children back then and how I first saw porn, it was a magazine in the corner of a park. And then you can guarantee that there's probably a cruising ground near there or there's a dodgy toilet near there. So I found myself kind of, it was wanting to find other people who weren't at school and who were gay. And so obviously I found myself in very dangerous situations and I'm really glad that now there are resources for young people and they won't find themselves suddenly hanging around with kind of like older predatory men, basically. Okay, so this podcast, obviously called The Coming Out Tapes, is about coming out. So um, do you remember the first time that you came out and who did you come out to? Well, I mean, I think like for many of us, and I think it, I think it's a great misunderstanding um, that straight people think, is that we kind of we come out and then we're done. Mm. Um, but as as we both know, it's just a continuing process. And every day, you on some micro level, you are either coming out or not coming out. Um, but I guess the most dramatic for me, or the uh, and um, and it was one where I really had to define myself. Um, I was traveling with my father. Uh, my father left when I was two. I didn't really meet him till I was like twenty three. 
and we went travelling through Thailand and India together. This was his way. He's a hippie, a pot-smoking, banjo-playing hippie. And this was his way of making up for abandoning me for years, was to take, to take me travelling. And he decided that we should go to an ashram in Pune, in India. And he told me this kind of like about a month before we were going there. And I knew from the, from, from the booklet that you had to take a HIV test to get into the ashram, which I thought was really off. But it also scared the life out of me because I hadn't had a HIV test, nor had I come out to my hippie dad that I was travelling with. And so for the month travelling up to that, I went into this mental spiral where I was just imagining us getting to this ashram, him getting in after taking the HIV test and me taking the HIV test and not doing so well in it, and then what would happen, and then I would be forced to come out and I had this whole nightmare scenario. So, and I kind of said to my dad on the way there, I'm really worried about the HIV test. And he was like, yeah, me too. I've had like a really bad cold for ages. And I was just like, no, 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 you don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) This is really serious. Um, But obviously not able to say anything. And then we went into the ashram. I I was negative, got into the ashram. Um, It was the ashram of... Bhagwan Sri Rajani, she's also known as Osho, and his followers are sannyasins, and it's basically was seen as a cult. And my father was doing some three-day meditation where he was in silence, and you had to wear a badge saying, I'm in silence, so that people didn't ask you the time and stuff like <laughs> that, and bother you from your silence where you were going within to look at your thoughts. And while he was doing that, I went to um, Darshan, which is like a, like a lecture, and Osho, who was our leader, he was now dead, but everything he said was recorded, said that homosexuality is a Western decadence. And I'd been in India for some time, and I knew that it wasn't just a Western thing. I also knew that just common sense and biology, that it's not just a Western thing. And I was furious. So I didn't know what to do with this. So I went and I found my father. I kind of like dragged him out of this workshop, and I said, I know you're in silence, um, so you don't have to speak, but I'm going to speak. So it was this weird situation. I don't think many people get to come out to someone who is in silence <laughs> and can't respond to them. And I said, I've just been to this thing and I've heard Osho talking and I was happy to be here and all the rest of it, but he says that homosexuality is a Western decadence and I know that it isn't because this is not a decadence. I did not want this. I am this. I am gay. I have fought it. This is not a decadence. I, for many years, I thought it was a curse, and I could do nothing with it, but I am fine with it, and he is wrong. And if he is wrong on this, maybe this whole ashram is wrong. Maybe all the meditation and everything we are doing here is wrong, because he's supposed to be an enlightened master, and That is not an enlightened thought. That is not the thought of an enlightened master from whatever religion or shape or form. That is not an enlightened thought. So all of this is bullshit and we need to get out of here. And he said, I think I'm going to come out of silence. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, what are you going to do? And he says, we're going to go back to the apartment and smoke some weed and talk this out. So that's what we did. And I said to him, I had, that's why I feared like the HIV test, you know, and I thought that, you know, I wouldn't, like, get through it. And he said, and what did you think would happen then? And I said, well, I had visions of myself kind of, like, outside the ashram, kind of, like, in the gutter with, like, a begging bowl, watching you go in every day. And he was like, how could you think that? I was like, I don't know. And and I said, what would you have done had I come out as HIV positive? What would you have done? 
He said, well, we'd have just gone out of here. We'd gone up to Nepal. We'd have got some opium and just smoked that until we worked it all out. And I was like, the issue here is me, not him. You know, this is this is my stuff. I mean, my dad as a as a a stand up father figure perhaps is another question. Um, but that was kind of my most dramatic kind of coming out that that I felt. Um, and he's since he comes out with me all the time to gay clubs. He's a people think he's my boyfriend or my older <laughs> brother. He's a very charming man, and he's very happy, kind of you know, in those environments. So, so, so that worked out okay. Yeah, I, I mean, given the context and the time period, I'm not surprised that you would presume someone you didn't know that well would respond poorly to you coming out as gay. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that was like your stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, no, I, I, I guess it. Well, well, I didn't know my dad either, and yeah. also how super liberal he is because he is actually more liberal than I am. You know, he's complete and utter like a narco hippie. Um, so, had I understood that and thought that that, you know, understood that, but you just don't believe anyone. No. It's, and yeah. you don't know how people are going to react, you know. And my stepfather that I was brought up with had shown some quite homophobic, you know, reactions to stuff in my teens. So you just kind of withdraw after that. If you have a bad reaction to your sexuality or your lifestyle, you you can withdraw and it can put you off doing it for some time. So that was your dad. Um, how How did it go coming out to your mum? Do you feel comfortable talking about that? Well, I do feel comfortable in the, but I never got the chance because she died when I was fifteen. So, I, so I, I, I will never know. Um, the, but I do know that I would not have got away with what I did because after my mum died, you know, my my stepfather had to um, focus on my younger brother and sister. So I became the wayward teen. So while I was off going to gay clubs and gay bars and going all over London, he was looking after them. Had my mum been alive, she would have been all over that. She would have known everything that I was doing and I wouldn't have had to come out to her. She would have found stuff on me uh, straight away. So I'll never know. And I, I imagine that today kind of she would be sat in gay clubs with me. She'd be one of those she'd be one of those mums. Um, so I, so I don't know. Um, I, for the third year of my degree show, I directed a play at the Liverpool Playhouse and it was called Cock and Bull Story. And it was about, it was a two hander about East End boxers. And one of the boxers is gay and he has a very bad relationship with his best friend because of it. And when I put that on, that was seen by a lot of people as my big coming out moment. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it wasn't definitive because I didn't stand up on the stage and say I'm gay. But the fact that I put on a play with such a kind of queer topic um, was a subtle way of me kind of coming out without having to do it. I mean, now, you know, my entire family, you know, no, I've, I've had enough of a public profile for I can't really hide anything now. So and that's that's a good place to be. So you'd, would you say that you like don't actively have to come out to people now? It's just sort of enough people know in your life. I, I guess so. I mean, you know, my entire family is on Facebook. Um, you know, so that that's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, because, you know, all my gay friends are on Facebook as well, you know, and you kind of like, and you have those situations where, you know, like when I do Queer Question Time at the Vauxhall Tavern and sometimes, you know, members of my family will come down and you just have that thing where someone you slept with randomly just is suddenly like talking <laughs> to one of your parents, you know, and you just kind of, you just worry that there's just this melding, but I don't worry now. You know, I just kind of like, they can handle it. They're adults. That's what you kind of forget, that they're adults. And and they're effectively in your space, you know. And they are generally quite excited and honoured to be there. Um, and while I guess nobody wants to hear about their child and their sexual exploits, it never boils down to that. It ne It's never that gritty. It's never that awful. It's just the fear that you see someone that you know could say something to your parent that would upset them. But that's what they're there for. And they need to be worn down. And they need to be exposed to that stuff. And don't be fearful of it. But it takes a long time to get there. Um, okay, so we've talked about your most dramatic coming out story. Um, do you have like something that you would say is maybe your best story or your, your worst story? Well, I think it's... An ongoing thing, which is, um, do you come out to people straight off the bat as soon as they meet you? Or do you charm them in some way first, get them on the side, and then come out? And I think that's specifically, I don't know how it is for girls, um, but specifically as a guy who finds themselves in a sometimes all-male, heterosexual, macho environment uh, where there is a lot of boisterous testosterone. And so they are likely to act in like a pack. Um, for example, like my, my, my dad's a building contractor, so when I was young, I worked on building sites a lot. Now, it was just not, that would be so unwise to walk onto a building site and just say, right, before we start, everyone, before I get this hod on my back, um, I'm gay. You know, because you would just, you know, I guess like the army and the, all those situations where there is a certain amount of camaraderie that you have to, you have to join the gang. Um, and so the question is, you know, do, how, like, do I wait until I've got them on side? And then when I come out, they'll go, oh, oh, well, that's all right. You're one of the boys. And so therefore you have a successful, in inverted commas, coming out story. But is it? Have you betrayed yourself by not being fully honest with them from the beginning? I mean, when I have done that, I have never had a well, that's really terrible and I've been cut out of it. That has always been a winning formula, generally. But I do feel slightly deceptive in doing that. I've never had anyone say, well, you've tricked me all along and therefore that's wrong. Generally, you know, you can... You have been socially conditioned to think that if you don't wear your sexuality on your sleeve, then you're lying to people. Yes. Which is quite a difficult feeling to counteract. Um, and I feel... I feel bad for girls that I dated, you know, in, you know, my teens um, that are effectively beards, 
That sounds so terrible now, that <laughs> word. It sounds so Victorian. Um, but they weren't beards. I did love them, but I didn't love them in the way that they wanted. Yeah. And I feel, you know, if I could track them down now, it wasn't like I was, you know, I'm sure they had awful boyfriends as well. And they there were men that were weren't nice to them. I was always nice. But I feel... I feel that's a failure of coming out. You know, we, we we have our successful coming out stories and all the rest of it, but I feel when you when you're in a romantic relationship with someone and they might not under they may believe it's them that something is about them and if you don't get round to letting them know. I mean, I think even when you do let people know, I think sometimes they're still sad. I think they were all strong women. They've all gone on to do successful things and they're probably not crying about this at all. <laughs> um, but I, it's it's just one of those things. I think yeah. it's a kind of like it's a, it's a failure of, of coming out and, you know, and I, and, I, and I wonder, you know, I don't find myself in straight clubs flirting with women now, but like in minor situations. The other day I was walking along and a woman definitely kind of, like checked me out she was with a group of women so obviously it, it wasn't an unusual situation and they were like they were cocky and they were drunk yeah. and like and one of them completely and utterly cruised me and I, that hadn't happened in a long time um and it was just a passing moment on the street but I was like oh wow she didn't read me as gay that was my first thing and b I felt slightly deceptive I feel like I should run after her um but it's just a brief moment isn't it it's just and this is this is the odd thing about coming out is that it's never over and there are so many different levels of it and where do you take your honesty and if you see yourself as political and an activist um there is an idea that you need to be upfront about this straight away um or you're letting down the side yeah I, i think it's interesting that you choose to use the word honesty when like I mean she was a random stranger. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Um but you know, it's I guess these things hang over. You know, it's it's about when to be honest and yeah. and when it's relevant. Um and just that it churned over in my head for a couple of hours, I think is an indication of that's something straight men wouldn't be worrying about a few hours later. Do you know what I mean? It's that's just the difference there is that, you know, as queer people, you know, we think and we balance and we assess each situation with, you know, a level of detail. Um, I guess that heterosexual people will never, ever know about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So when you, so I think it's interesting that you're talking about, specifically in terms of relationships with people so like maybe close bonds so either people that you dated or your friends um so do you think that you feel the same way about people that you have like less of a relationship with so like there's no kind of any either a sexual undertone or like you're not gonna hang out with these people and form like an emotional connection yeah i think Again, it's kind of it's a case by case basis, but you know, I'm I don't care what those people think, you know, and 
I think that takes a really long time. You know, I live in a tower block, so kind of like the neighbours that I see in the block, you never know how often you're going to see them. Um, you know, if I'm leaving, say when I've been leaving the, the flat and I've got into the lift in drag, for example, and I bump into one of the neighbours, I think, well, not that one. <laughs> um but then it's like, I don't care. I li- But then you have to remind you, you know, you have that moment's anxiety. I'm sure you'd have that anxiety if you were straight and you were in drag. But, you know, it's, you know, I, you know, now I care less and less. You know, it's, unless it's a situation where I could come to some violence, you know, generally I will, I will, I'm not going to hide it. But then how do you announce it? You know, in those situations that aren't necessarily intimate, you're just going to a local shop or something like that. I certainly don't dial down my campness. And I don't, you know, if um, I will be flirty with another man, unnecessarily so, you know, if the mood takes me. Um, just just to see how they react. Um, you know, but you find yourself in those situations, certainly with men, you know, when they ask, it's really basic, you know, when they ask what football team you support. Of course, there are there are queer football supporters. But in, as soon as you flounder on that, there's a massive question mark over you um, for your masculinity. Not necessarily about your sexuality, but they, they look at you with a like, mm, there's something not right here. That is, And so at that point, you have to either say... I find football really boring or I'll just say I'm gay. I'm just much more into pop videos or ballet or something <laughs> like that, a contemporary dance, um, and then see how they go for there. It's kind of, I used to kind of like leave that one hanging there. You know, I don't support a football team and they'll go, why? And you'll go, well, um, uh, and now I'm like, I don't like football. Um, I like contemporary dance. And, you know, that's just a confidence that you get when you just become tired and you realise that your time is running out and you haven't got time to be coming out with these wishy-washy things. Weary confidence. Yes. Um, So, okay, so we've talked about, like, loads of different ways of coming out, saying that you don't like football, um, to, like, potentially HIV testing, all this kind of stuff. What... Um, does coming out sort of mean to you if you had to describe it? Um, it's weird because it's it's often portrayed as and quite rightly as a liberating thing because it is a liberating thing um, in a situation where it works out positively. Um, but I do... I do think it's a, a tiresome aspect of our lives um, and that it's obviously still an issue, um, a massive issue in certain industries and what you do when you look at... Yeah, we do have a few out gay actors, um, but they tend to play acting roles. And while there's still that discussion over whether you... If you've come out as a as a male gay actor, you can play a romantic lead after that these things can still have a dramatic effect on your earnings and how you're perceived by the world. Um, and while it's easier for people to come out um, now, um, I still think that it's um, 
I mean, I'm happy about it, you know, and I think ultimately we become skilled um, as people who have to search our own souls and how we interact with the world. I think the self-reflection that you have to do as a queer person and the self-assessment of every situation that you're in um, makes you into a super being. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it does, in some ways. It can make you very fragile and, you know, depressed and, you know, unsure of where you are. But it can also make you a super being in that straight people don't do that. So you become hyper aware. And that's a good skill to have going forward in the world because we've all got to be awake with what's going on. But the, one of the things that, you know, I think is interesting is when you don't come out to people and you don't have that discussion that you can underestimate their love for you, certainly with regards to family. You know, I had family members who I just kind of left out of my life for a number of years because I thought at best they wouldn't be interested and B, they might be disgusted if they knew what I was getting up to. And much later on in life... Um, I had conversations with them where they were really upset that they felt that I hadn't been able to talk to them and they would have liked to have been in that part of my life. So I think that's that's one of the other angles about coming out that is great, that you can get that out of the way um, and find out that someone does really love you, you know, because as as growing up, if you're thinking that you're gay, you can feel unloved, you can fear people withdrawing their love, and you can struggle with loving yourself, you know. So, you know, when you find an auntie who turns around and says, like, why didn't you tell me? You know, I've loved you this whole time. I love you even more now that you're gay. And you just think that they would have thought the opposite, um, that's one of the upsides of of coming out is is finding out that stuff is is kind of a way of proving the love that's around you and the support that's around you. Of course, it can go completely wrong, but it's also a way of redefining that, and that can be very affirming. It's quite a positive note to end on. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Finish yeah. it there. Thank you so much for listening. Um, you've been listening to me, Karis Bradley. I'd like to say a couple of thank yous to the other people who've worked on this project. So Alex Lathbridge, who has helped with the hosting of the podcast and also the compiling of, of the music that you've heard, um, and to Scary Boots for creating our incredible artwork. Please subscribe, review, tell your friends, spread the word. Um, and if you want to get involved and be interviewed on the podcast, then there's a link um on the website and in the bio of our, our Twitter, so there's a little form that you can fill out. I hope you have a lovely day. Um, so you're a DJ. Mm -hmm. So if people want to book you for a 50th wedding. Or a 21st or an 18th, or a funeral or a bar mitzvah, or actually a rave at 7 o'clock in the morning on the outskirts of London in a warehouse, I'm there. Where are they going to find you? DJ Stuart Who is my is Twitter, and I have a website, StuartWho.com.
they can look there. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.